Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are doing things differently. We are choosing, we are committing to prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships while building a business that creates a meaningful impact in the lives of the people that we love and generating the wealth for us to design a beautiful life on our terms. And if you're here as either a first-time listener or a seasoned listener, I appreciate you. I love you. And thank you so much for investing in yourself and taking time today to expand and grow. Every single week, I'm interviewing epic humans, making a beautiful impact in the world to support you and doing the same. And I work so hard to curate what I call real humans, respectful, enthusiastic, appreciative, and loving humans. And I invest a ton of time and research to pull out the stuff from the guests so that you get their best content. And today to say that we have a legend on the show is a understatement. Today's legendary leader of impact is Shah Wasmund. And I'm going to tell you about her bio in a bit, but in this episode, I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, how Shah stole letterhead from the Cosmopolitan magazine to land an interview with a world champion boxer and ended up becoming the world's only licensed female boxing manager at the time with 22 world title fights under her belt. Number two, how Shah ended up working with Sir James Dyson as her first ever client and helped him set the foundation to build his company and was headhunted personally by Richard Branson before her 24th birthday. And just as a fun note, I looked it up. Uh, Sir James Dyson is as of the Sunday times rich list in 2022. He is the second richest person in the UK with an estimated net worth of $23 billion. And it was really cool because Shah was working him and helping him to build a business before it was what you knew, what you know it to be today. So super exciting. And number three, I want you to look out for how Shah has done all of this built multiple seven-figure businesses from the ground up, had multi-seven-figure exits, and she's done all this despite the fact that she grew up in poverty with an incredibly abusive father. And we went into some of those crazy stories. So she didn't have a silver spoon in her mouth. She built all this herself. So you're probably wondering, who is Shaw? Shaw is a original misfit, maverick, and magic maker. Despite an economics degree from the London School of Economics and a proud recipient of an MBE from the Queen, her real talents come from the School of Hard Knocks. And just because I didn't know what it was as a uh, somebody that is not from the UK, an MBE is the most excellent order of the British Empire, and it is a British order of chivalry, rewarding contributions to the arts and sciences and work with charitable and welfare organizations and public service outside of the silver service. There's five classes of appointment to the order. And so she received that from the queen herself, which is absolutely incredible. So going back to her bio, growing up on a council estate, which is the UK's equivalent of living in the projects, as Shah mentioned, Shah learned early on that the only way to level the playing field was to first believe you could, then go all in on making it happen. Shah's first book, Stop Talking, Start Doing, became W.H. Smith's number one best-selling book for 14 months in a row, breaking all industry records. The Sunday Times named her as one of the top 20 most influential entrepreneurs in the UK. And she is the CEO of a $100 million technology fund. She sold over 250,000 copies of her books, 20,000 copies of her courses, and basically all the awards. She's built multiple seven-figure businesses from the ground up and had multi-seven-figure exits. And Shaw has never been one to sit on the fence or rest on her laurels. And today, her sole mission is to level the playing field and create real social mobility for all. And reading that, it's almost like it doesn't even seem like it's humanly possible. That is so incredible. And man, we dive into a ton today. And so I am super excited for you to listen to this incredible mind-bending interview with Shah Wassman. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Shaw, 
Welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. This is going to be an absolute blast. Very, very excited to be here. <laughs> well, I, I thought after looking through your site and reading your book, you have a wide-ranging, diverse, exciting roller coaster of an entrepreneurial journey. So I thought a really fun place to start would be somewhere around your last year of college, you stole some letterhead, um, and that led uh -huh. to some incredible opportunities for you. So I would love for you to start by sharing that story and kicking us off there. Yeah, totally. Um, I, and I love sharing this story because I think it shows people that so often we are faced with opportunities and we miss them and we miss them because we're scared of taking them so i guess the lesson is to not be afraid of taking the opportunities so th this goes back to my 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 kind of my time i was at university i was studying economics at the london school of economics a pretty prestigious university where people are let's be honest they're pretty serious about working and I'm not saying I wasn't serious about working, I was, but equally I've always been a real creative. So I'd won a competition to uh, write for Cosmopolitan magazine whilst I was at LSE. And um, to cut a long story short, I was sat in the editor's office one day waiting for her to come back into the room. And I basically wanted to interview this world champion boxer. And I was trying to figure out, well, how am I gonna do this? And I was basically going to see her to ask for advice. And then while she was out of the room, I kind of saw this very distinct letter-headed paper on her desk, which said from the editor's office with, you know, the Cosmopolitan logo on the top right-hand side. And there's a saying that, you know, sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. And in that moment, I just thought to myself, well, what's the worst that could happen? You know, if I use this and write to him and he says, no, no, no one's gonna be any the wiser. If I use this and I write to him and he says yes, then she's going to be super proud because like I've taken the initiative and I've actually done something. And um, so that's how it happened. I basically snuck like five, 10 sheets of paper out of the office and uh, and I, I pretty much used that to start my career. That's so cool. And just for some context, because I know most of our audiences in the US, I looked up Chris Eubank. He's got a funky accent. He was the WBO middleweight, super middleweight titles. He held the, those titles from 1990 to 1995, ranked as the third best British super middleweight boxer of all time. So this is a pretty big deal that you had the balls, for lack of a better word, to just go after it and, and, and secure an interview like that. So I'm, I'm curious to zoom in a little bit here. What did that letter say? Obviously, you had the letterhead so that it was coming from Cosmopolitan. But when what was it that you said to him that opened the door to the opportunity? And then if you could expand once you got that interview, what happened as a result of it? Yeah, totally. And you're absolutely right to give some context. So, you know, he, he was the at the time, the undisputed super middleweight champion of the world. Um, so it didn't really make any difference whether he was in America or he was in, in the UK because the undisputed world champion is the undisputed world champion, yeah. not the British champion or the American champion. He just happened to be British. And he also had a really bad public kind of persona in the sense that he came across as very arrogant. He came across as misogynist. He came, you know, he, he um, and none of those things are particularly unusual in boxing. But I kind of, I've always been one to do, to be a bit contrary. So I, I didn't write to him like, oh, I'd love to do an interview on how great you are. I actually wrote to him and said, you know, I can't remember exactly how I worded, but it was something along these lines. Hey, Chris, I'm a journalist and I write for Cosmopolitan magazine. Now, unlike all the other magazines who are labeling you as a misogynist and this, I don't believe any of that is true. I think you've actually been very misunderstood and I'd really like to set the record straight. So here's what I suggest. And then I laid out kind of what the opportunity was. And I'd also, I also know a lot about boxing. My granddad was an amateur fighter and I referenced that. So I could talk to him in a language that he understood. And, and I talked about the dedication, the discipline that it took and that sometimes in the process of that dedication and discipline, sometimes our answers all aren't always as elongated as other people who have more time because actually the world that he lives in is very short, sharp get to the point, give your answer, give your question, just move on. And so sometimes people can misinterpret that, right? And so I approached him in, a, in, the, in the best way that I thought was gonna do two things. One, get his attention, and two, get him to say yes. Because if all I did was focus on getting him to say yes, if I didn't get his attention, then I would never get the chance for him to say yes. So sometimes I think people miss a step, right? 
So I think that when you've got a goal, rather than going straight towards the end goal, what is the first step? So one of the things I do in business is I reverse engineer everything. So I'm like, okay, so if this is what I want, what has to have happened here and here and here to have made that happen? So what I wanted was the interview. So what had to happen for him, for me to get the interview? Well, obviously he has to say yes, but what has to happen before that? Well, before that, he has to actually be interested and actually read what I've written because if he doesn't do that then so and I also when I wrote when I wrote the letter I I was very clear like I I I didn't you know it was there was no email this was I knew who I was dealing with I knew what was important to him so I went to Bond Street which is like you know like a super bougie super high-end like Rodeo Drive kind of like in the most expensive shops in the UK. And I went to, to the Royal stationeries. So they're the ones who do all the Royal paper and the Royal envelopes. And I spent a fortune, like some of my student loan on those expensive paper and envelopes. And they had, you know, purple tissue paper lining because this guy was so specific about everything he did when it came to his looks and every So I wanted him to open it and feel like wow this is impressive right there's so first much impressions gold count. First so much impressions gold. count yeah. yeah so much gold in what you just shared there obviously you thought about it from his perspective right you looked at where he was be how he was being positioned in other ways and how you could come across in a completely different way and obviously that led to some incredible opportunities for you you became the world's only licensed female boxing manager for him so that interview actually turned into more than that and 22 title fights under your belt which yeah you know i'm sure i'm sure that's played <laughs> a big role in and and how you've been able to leverage that story to build more and more momentum for yourself so that's absolutely incredible and i'd love to there's so much to cover in so little time i know you end up working with james dyson you ended up getting an mba from the queen for services to business and entrepreneurship so you've done some big things but it, it didn't always start this way right like you were you didn't have yeah. a silver spoon in your mouth so yeah. i would love for people to get some context before we dive into some of the other big stuff is would you mind sharing a little bit about what was going on in your life around age eight if you could kind of zoom in around there and tell us what was going on yeah, totally, because I think this is so important. So even though I've got a very British accent, I was born in California. I have dual passports, I have dual nationality. Um, my, my dad was super smart. He went to Stanford on a scholarship, and I was actually born at Stanford Hospital. But, you know, just because you're smart doesn't make you a good person, doesn't, you know, doesn't, neither does having money. And unfortunately, my, my dad was a, a, a very uh, heavy user of cocaine, uh, and and violence that went with it. Um, my parents went through a hugely traumatic uh, divorce. My dad, I, I witnessed severe domestic violence from a very, very young age, to the extent that yeah, my dad was incredibly narcissistic and manipulative and sold the family home that we lived in to his parents. You know, it's probably like back then worth a million dollars, like, you know, way, way, way back then. So maybe, I don't know, like five million now, or at least three. And um, he sold it for $35,000 to his parents. And the purpose was so that in the divorce proceedings, my mom got nothing, which obviously also meant that the, the children got nothing. And my dad never paid child support ever. So he went to Stanford on a scholarship and clearly super bright guy. But, uh, you know, again, that, that doesn't really mean anything if your integrity and your morals and, and your ethics and the way that you deal with people and the impact that you have on the world is an incredibly negative one. And so, you know, unfortunately for me, I actually grew up for, you know, a big chunk of my life before I came to the UK, I grew up in the projects. Like in the UK, we'd call it a council estate. In the US, you guys would call it the projects. So I, I grew up on the welfare estate. I, I grew up living in neighborhoods where there were drug dealers on every single corner. I grew up in, you know, incredible violence. And I think for, for me, that period of time was when I made a very distinct decisions that I was never going to be beholden to anyone else as, as a young girl I saw my mom having to stay in a relationship that she didn't want to be in and in a relationship that was emotionally and physically abusive but she couldn't afford to remove herself from it because she had two young kids and couldn't afford to pay for a house or an apartment or anywhere to live and I think I just decided very very early on that 
that would never ever be my life like ever like ever this was never ever that that this this would end with me that this would never be repeated and it wasn't and and I'm really really proud of that because I made that decision very young yeah, that's incredible. I would love to, if you're okay with it, I would love to zoom in on like kind of one of the lowest points of that moment. And then we can kind of go, we'll, we'll take it up from here. But chocolate yeah. chip cookies, talk, talk to me a little bit about chocolate yeah. chip cookies. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I share these things because I think it's important to understand where somebody has come from because all too often we watch YouTube videos and we listen to podcasts and, and it just seems so far removed from our own lives, right? We think, well, that's great for Lewis Howes and Hormozy. It's great for all those guys because their life isn't my life. And so I share these things so that people can understand, you know what? It really doesn't matter where you're at right now. It doesn't matter how bad the things are that you're going through. There, there is always a way out. There is always a way through. And there is always an opportunity to turn things around. So when I was eight years old, um, I, I felt like, you know, people talk about radical responsibility. And I feel like I've had this since I was a child because I felt very responsible for myself, but also for my mom and my brother. And I was super protective. And my dad was incredibly violent. My mom had been hospitalized twice. Um, my dad was a very, you know, serious cocaine addict. And sometimes I remember coming home once and uh, my dad had passed out. He was supposed to be looking after my brother who was two at the time. So my brother was like, we're just wandering around the house and there were lines of cocaine on the toilet seat. And, you know, these were some of my earliest memories. And the, the tipping point for me was, was probably the last time that my dad was physically violent with my mom. I made a decision that, that that was it, that I would no longer put up with this and that I had to step in. And at, at that time, at that period of my life, the only way I could see to step in and do anything as hugely dramatic as this sound in my eight-year-old head it 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 was the only solution and that solution was I had to get rid of my dad and I I baked chocolate chip cookies I put uh I put rat's poison in them and um, my mom came home I I I you know the sad thing is even now all these years later I don't know whether to say it was fortunate that she came home or not, because I don't necessarily believe it was fortunate. And that's an awful thing. But if you have witnessed that much trauma and that much abuse at, at such a young age, you you develop different ways of coping. And for me, all I cared about was protecting my mom and protecting my brother. I didn't even really care about protecting myself, right? Because for whatever reason, my dad was never abusive towards me in any way, shape or form but he, it was all directed at my mom. The only time that it became directed at me was when I would step in, but I would have no hesitation of stepping in. And so I just, I, th I think I just, I didn't know how to handle it any other way than to figure out how I could remove my dad from the situation. And my mom came home and she, she wanted to, you know, she said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, I was making, you know, chocolate chip cookies for my, for my dad. I said, I'm making them for, and she was like, she knew I hated my dad. Like, I made no mistake. Like, I made no mistake at a very young age how I felt. And she could tell that there was something that wasn't right. And obviously, you know, she unpacked what I'd done. And then she said, Shah, this, this, you know, you, this, you can't do this. But what she said to me years later was that the reason that that was the, the final point for her to actually leave, no matter what the circumstances were, even if we had to go and live in a hostel, was because she felt if she didn't, that I wasn't going to stop, that I would do whatever it took to take care of my mom and my brother. And that I had actually, as an eight-year-old, said to her, you know, I'd thought it all through and said, I'm I'm not going to go to prison. I, I'm too young. They'll send me for junior psychiatric care and and they'll they'll see all the record of the amount of times that the police have come to the house and that you've been hospitalized. Like you know, there's so much evidence against my dad and his behavior that I'm nothing's going to happen to me, mom. But if you do something, you're going to go to prison. I'm not going to prison. And she said that scared her more than anything, that as an eight-year-old child, I'd actually thought the whole thing through, not just that I was prepared to, to do something, but that I thought what would happen afterwards. And I prepared for all the consequences. And she said, I was just too, she said, you were just too serious. You were just, I couldn't risk it. And yeah. So I share that because I think that people people often think that when you see somebody who's got the 
material success and the things that, that, that maybe we were all striving for, it seems like we're striving for, it seems like they've had, they must have had an easier journey than us. And the reality is often that that's not the case. Often the reason we're so driven is because something has happened to us early on that makes us so driven and so focused. Such a crazy story. And thank you so much for being willing to share that. I know that's like tough stuff but to, to relive that. But it's funny because my wife and I, we're watching Criminal Minds right now. And it's like you watch like all these serial killers. And usually there's some kind of crazy fucked up experience from your childhood that caused you to go off the deep end and they end up being, being serial killers. So it's like you can become a serial killer. Can, or can I just the say way I am not a serial killer? Just, just <laughs> Just of course, to, 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 <laughs> I'm zooming in. Maybe we'll discover something else we didn't know in the, on the show about Shah. But I, I, the reason why I say that is because like you can you can take it that way, or you can take it what you did, and you channel channel yeah. that into a way that was you channel that into your ambition. You channel that into solving problems and doing big things in the world and taking risks because. I, I'm assuming that going that low so young, it's like you have nothing left. You have nothing to lose. You've seen the very bottom. Uh, so a hundred percent. And actually that was one of the biggest lessons that my mom taught me. She said, you know, I just never want you to be afraid of taking risks and, and really pursuing what you want to do and, and, and not paying any attention to other people's limitations because whatever happens, you're never coming back here. Right. So no matter what happens in my life, I'm never going back there. So it, it, it can only be better than what it was. Yeah. And so, so we already talked a little bit about Chris Eubank. So like, you know, we have a little bit of your, you know, tenacity, you know, showing there. Another person that's a huge figure you ended up working with with James Dyson. So yeah. I, I have in my notes, James Dyson took a chance on you. And and so I would, I would love to find out, you know, we already talked about stealing letterhead to get in front of Chris Eubank. How did this opportunity to work with I James mean, Dyson come about? <laughs> this was just another one of those crazy, moments in time where you just are in the right place at the right time with the right connection so it just so happened that he had won his lawsuit against Amway where they so the backstory to this is that Amway infringed one of Dyson's patents early on and that's how Dyson funded the billion dollar company that is Dyson today because um, at the beginning nobody would fund Dyson no bank no BC no private equity no one would give him money so the only way he actually got funding was he he took Amway to court and he won and he just won that case and he just come into money but he was still working from home at this point right still working from around a kitchen table in his house way before everyone was working from home right this was when people were never working from home and if you worked from home you were like you know you definitely weren't a serious business person and he had reached out to, or he had been connected with a friend of mine's dad. And and uh, my friend's dad was a copywriter. And they were trying to see if they could come up with enough budget to start to do above the line advertising. So newspaper, magazine, advertising. And they were starting to realize that they didn't know if they really had that kind of money and maybe they needed to do something else. And maybe what they needed to do was, you know, PR. And so... James asked my friend's dad, okay, um, you know, I think we can do some advertising, but we just don't have massive budgets. I think we really, what we really need to do is we need somebody really strong on PR. Like, do you know anyone? And the maddest thing, like this guy says, yeah, my daughter's friend, Shah, I think you guys would get on great. Like, I mean, he, I don't think my friend's dad even contemplated, hold up a second. Like I'm recommending someone who... I mean, I had just finished working with Chris Eubank because Chris had retired, whose only experience is like working in the boxing industry. And <laughs> so, but it was one of those moments, again, that's just completely life-changing because I went to meet James and um, one hour meeting turned into five hours. And, and that was the next five years of my career. I, I, I stayed working for James from around a kitchen table to the first, you know, to his, his, his first kind of, office and factory and then I went to Australia and I went to America and I helped set up all, all over the world and I mean it was the best MBA I could ever have done and I didn't even have to pay for it. So many things there. First, I think it's really, I don't know who I was talking to that had this conversation about, but like the importance of having those second degree connections. Lots of times you think all these opportunities come from the immediate people that you know, but if you just look at it, the reality is that you have much more second degree connections than you do first degree connections. And so treating those relationships right and like that quote unquote serendipity that happens often comes yeah. as a result of you making sure that you're just being a good human and making sure that your, your name has the right reputation. So I love yeah. that. And I also want to zoom in a little bit 
on meeting with James, you know, so I know that like, obviously at the time that you met him, it wasn't that everybody's going to a, a restroom and you're drying your hands in a Dyson dryer and you don't, and not yeah. a, at this point, nobody had Dyson vacuum no. cleaners in their closet nobody, and that kind of stuff. Nobody <laughs> knew who he was. Nobody had any idea who he was. So, so what was, I mean, I guess, so the, the mindset, I guess it wasn't that you're going to work for some billion dollar company right now. Cause it wasn't at that point, but at, at the same time, like you, you, you were still like earlier on in your journey, what was the mindset that you kind of had going into that? Like, cause I feel like many people would come across an opportunity like that and be like, Oh, who am I to do this? Or I don't have the experience to do this. So like, talk a little bit about like how you felt, like, were you nervous going into that? And how did you overcome kind of those no. situations where you felt like you were batting? No, I'll be honest. I and I think that I don't want this to come across as like I'm arrogant or braggadocious, but I have never felt like that in any meeting. And mm. I'll tell you why, because I always believe that if you're in the room, there's a reason you're in the room. So if you're in the room having a meeting with somebody, there's a reason you're there because they didn't need to have that meeting. They are there with you because you are bringing value to that table. So I just knew straight away well, that there's obviously something that he wants because otherwise, why would I be here? So if I'm here, I'm going to make the most of it. And, and, you know, I've always been very confident and grounded internally. And I think that working with, and it's like a muscle, like going to the gym, right? So I also knew that working with Chris had given me more confidence and more, had really worked on that muscle. I knew what I was capable of. And I knew that I really didn't have very many limitations in terms of what I believed I was capable of. But the funny thing was that I could tell we were getting on and I could tell he kind of loved the fact that I was young and a maverick and I was confident and I was a woman and I wasn't, he loved the fact I'd been in boxing. Like I was just like, not like what I think anybody expected. But then it came to him asking me on the spot how much I would charge him to take on Dyson as a client, but you know, like almost full time, right? So so I had my own agency at that time, but he really wanted my focused dedication, right? He wanted my focused dedication, wanted my focus time. So he asked me to work out like, you know, on the basis that I think, I think back then, I think we said I'll do a 30 hour week on his account. That's, you know, that's a big chunk of the week. Now, so my naivety, and this is hilarious. I didn't, I didn't really understand how to charge, right? So I had no benchmark because I'd gone straight from working for someone right so I'd work I was on payroll with Eubank so I was part of the team and I was on payroll and this was the first time I set up my own company so this was he was the first client I ever had but he was the first person I ever had right so he was my first client so I go to my first client meeting and he and, and he's asking me how much I'm going to charge like okay so Shah I love this you know this is all great great so can you just work out how much is this, this is going to be so I understand what my you know What's your retainer each month? And I didn't know what to say, but I knew I had to say something. So the only framework that I had was a friend of mine had just started out as a lawyer and she was working for one of, you know, the what I think you call like the, the, the big five, the magic circle, the, the top firms, right? And I just remember a conversation I'd had with her. <laughs> but the conversation was around how much... <laughs> The conversation was around how much she was charging, but the conversation, I got it a bit messed up in my head. So the conversation we had was about how much the firm was charging her out at as from their perspective, not how much she was getting paid, right? So I got that all mixed up in my head. So the number I had in my head that she was getting paid was not what she was getting paid. It was what the big firm was charging <laughs> her out at to their clients. So I took that number and then I multiplied that by the hours that he wanted. And I came up with this figure. So at 20, at 21, I was billing 12 and a half thousand pounds a month, like straight into my pocket. So I've been making six figures. I've been taking home six figures since I was 21. And what was his reaction to that? Like, like, so like you have, like, how did you, how did that exchange go? So like, because I, I'm I studying... was so naive, I, because I was so naive and I really believed that because in my head, this is what I'm thinking, right? So Brandon, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, well, like Julia's great, but like May, she's no better than me. So if that's what she's worth, I am definitely worth. And I had such confidence because in my mind, I'm thinking, 
if that's what she's worth, there is no way I'm worth less than that. So he's getting a good deal because I'm charging him what Judas, I mean, like, hey, this guy's getting a good deal. So it must have come across that way, right? So it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a nervous confidence. It wasn't a bragging confidence. It was a, he's getting a good deal. Like he's really getting a good deal. And he just turned around and said, you better be worth it. I said, of course I am. He said, okay then. And that was it. I mean, that was it. We had a contract signed before I left the office. Oh my gosh. That is okay. So I'm studying lots of Dan Kennedy right now. Uh, so for anybody that Dan has studied, Kennedy. yeah. So anybody that studied, like, I'm sure as a repeating theme, I'm going to probably start talking about Dan Kennedy a lot. Cause I'm like deep in his shit right now, but like one of Dan's original pieces of content, he's got this program called brass balls. <laughs> and like, one of the things he talks about is like, one of the best ways to control your price is your ability to just have a straight face while you state your price. Right. Cause and he literally talks about like having his clients practice stating the price in front of a mirror because if you don't say that with conviction if you don't believe that you're worth that they pick up on 100%. that and so 100 percent. and it's funny that you say that because back in uh, <laughs> i did an interview with the sunday times when i was working with eubank about my job and my role because it's very unusual to have a woman in in boxing and they described me as having steel balls with spikes on. And I was like, oh, I'll take that as a compliment. Like, I don't know if you were trying to diss me if this was some like anti-feminist thing, but I, I don't really give a shit. I'm going to take that as a compliment. Thank you very much. I, was, I will have steel balls with spikes on. I'm good with that. I was going to say, you should pull that as a quote and that should be some of the header copy on, on your site is quoted by whatever uh, journal I, that was, steel balls yeah. with spikes on it. That's yeah. so cool. And I, I love how you've clearly not only had diverse experiences, but leveraged this inside your branding. Not every day do you have a conversation with somebody that has worked with Chris Eubank, that has worked with James Dyson and has an MBE and all that kind of stuff. It's like, but like those experiences, I believe that as you built that into your branding, as you built that into your conversations, it led for more momentum for you to gain more 100%. and more of these opportunities. Absolutely, without question, because what they do is they layer the tapestry of who you are and so when an audience wants to relate to somebody, I think it's so important, especially in today's world where, you know, everybody is an influencer. Everybody has a social media platform. But hold up a second. Where's the reality behind this? What have you actually done? And I don't want to see someone who's just got a one dimensional. Great. You've run a seven figure business. But what did you do before you ran that seven figure business? Like, how much can I relate to you? Like, do you understand my journey? Do you understand what it's like to be a minority? Do you understand what it's like to be? A, a, a female in an all-male environment? Do you understand what it's like to come from, from adversity? Do you understand what it's like to not have anyone in your family or your peer group as role models? Do you understand what it's like to be the one who, who kind of changes your generational curse? Do Because if you don't understand those things, then I find it difficult to relate to you because that's my journey. And so for me, it's so important to be able to relate to people where they're at and not expect them to meet me where I'm at. Because mm -hmm. in reality, anytime, and that's why storytelling is identified as like one of the core first principles that anyone, any successful guest that's ever been on my show, it's like they've doubled down on storytelling because when you tell a good story, people see themselves from absolutely like standing next to you inside of that story. And it's so important to not only build these, but to be conscious about all that stuff. So, so incredible. And I, I know there's, I, so I'm trying to figure out where we can go with the rest of our time here. So if people have gotten a picture of, you know, where you've been, some of the things that you've done, and uh, you you have a book that's called Do Less, Get More, How to Work Smart and Live Life Your Way. Uh, read it. Is it absolutely incredible? Would highly any, re recommend anybody go check that out. Um, so I pulled a few uh, kind of the my favorite exercises that you had people do inside Good. of the book. I, I'd love to to dive into some of those. So um, right here, I always ooh. have my books. So that's that one. This is the, uh, that's the latest one. And I've actually got a new book coming out at the end of this year. Cool. 
Brilliant. So, and I love the shiny cover on the, 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 the do less, get more. <laughs> it's good stuff. So um, I guess, I think just to set some context, I'm just going to read this chunk that I highlighted from your book. So like, I, cause I think it's kind of summarized what the book is about. The less is more approach to life. And there's a bunch of bullet points. It's being fully present in whatever you're doing and whoever, whomever you're doing it with able to recognize the opportunities that reap the best rewards, doing the right thing at the right time, doing what you love and loving what you do, trusting in yourself and your instincts, trusting in others, being willing to ask for help, achieving more of what matters in less time, knowing what's important and when to let go, making the most of your talents and abilities and enjoying every step of the way. So um, I love that the the book kind of starts with that and kind of goes through all these kinds of exercises. But I figured in one of the most important things that I, I would love to highlight here is this chunk about, you talked about how happiness leads to success. And most people think that it's the other way around where success leads to happiness. But um, really this the key is aligning with your value, strengths, and passion. So I would love for you to share a little bit more about how somebody could get go deeper into that and expand their happiness as a result of, or success as a result of focusing on what is in alignment with who they are. The biggest challenge that we have today is this constant striving for more and more and more and more, and an almost inability to stop and pause and be happy with where we're at. And in the pursuit of happiness, most people are actually pursuing success, not happiness. And I feel like so many people have come to a place in their life where they're like, is, is this really it? Like, have I done all of this just to get here? And I'm not actually happy. Like what I've traded all of this time for this amount of money, but I've lost all that time. And so the message really is, Truthfully, you can make money doing anything, right? I mean, I can guarantee you there are millionaires who are selling shit. Like literally they're selling horse manure. There are millionaires <laughs> who are fixing electricity cables. There are millionaire coaches. There are millionaires who are making gluten-free recipes. That, I mean, forget all of that for a second. Just, just know for sure that you can make money doing anything. So how about you pick what you really want to do? How about you actually get conscious about what you really want to do? What is it that you really want to do? So I always say, ask yourself these questions. One, who do I really want to be? Now, that sounds like a strange question because I just want to be me. No, who do you really want to be? Like, forget what society tells you. Forget everything. Deep down in yourself, who do you really want to be? Two, how do you want to show up? What do I mean by that? Well, are you, are you gregarious? Are you an extrovert? Are you an introvert? Do you want a quiet life? Do you want to be out there? And by the way, you can have chapters in your life where that changes. So who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? Thirdly, who do I want to serve? Get really, really clear on your ideal client. And this isn't like one of those avatar exercises where you say, she's a 25 to 40 year old female who's got two kids and lives in suburbia and she drives an SUV. Think about someone that you've actually worked with before that you just love working with. Think about your favorite client, right? That's the one. We're going to double down on that person and get more of those people. And then fourthly, how do you want to serve them? So do you want to serve them? It's basically how do you want your business to run, right? So obviously I'm talking about this from a perspective of people who run their own businesses, but the same could be true about your career. So for me, the reason why happiness comes first is because if I pursue something that I'm passionate about in a way that I want to pursue it, and I create a business model around how I work best serving the people that I really want to work with, then I'm going to have success because I'm going to show up and do my best work and I'm going to get my best results. Because one of the things that I've learned as I've become more and more intentional around my success and more and more intentional around my business and my business model is that I really don't work well with people who sit on a fence, right? So some people are like, they just want, they want to be for everyone. And there's a place for that, right? Some people want to have memberships with thousands and thousands of members and they just want to put content out there. And whether people use it or not, it doesn't really matter because that's not their job. But I'm not that person. I don't like people who sit on fences. I like people who are decisive. I like people who are committed. So actually my business model has to be that I really only want to do live work where I show up with people who are going to do the work and come on a journey with me. I'm not the coach or the mentor to work with if you don't want to get results. And, and I don't say that like, like faux humility or sarcasm. I mean, you can't work with me if you don't want to do the work because I'm going to find 
you know, the way that I operate inside my programs is we create our programs in a very specific way so that we hold people hyper accountable. Because I know for sure that without accountability, it's so easy for even the most determined people to be sidetracked by life. And so what I've learned about happiness and success is I can't serve people who don't want to show up and do the work. I can't serve people who are happy with a mediocre life because I'm not here for a mediocre life and I don't want you to have a mediocre life. And I know that you don't have to have a mediocre life, but I also know that I can't want more for you than you want for yourself. So sometimes it's the hardest thing to do to say, I am not for these people because it feels like you're kind of this whole big audience. It feels like you're saying, okay, no, I can't serve you. And no, I can't serve you, but they were going to pay you money shot. Yeah, but they weren't going to make me happy, Brandon. So the more you, it's like, it's not, I sound like I'm Dr. Zeus, but the truth is the more you, you become, the more you start to attract the right people because you, 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 you're, you're polarizing. It becomes very clear to people. No, I'm an action taker. Charles, right for me. And you're like, no, I'm not ready for that level of accountability. You know, maybe in a year or two when I really know what I want to do, cool. If you're not ready, there's plenty of other places you can go to, but my door is not one of them. Oh my gosh. Um, so many comments that I want to build on here. I think the first is is so relevant is another pattern I've observed is what you said right there, that you said your, your Dr. Seuss quote, the more you, you become, the more you start to attract the right people because- Michelangelo, when he looked at the block of marble, it, it's he he carved until he set the angel free. I think that's kind of like the quote there. So it's like it's not about adding more to you. It's about stripping away the shit that isn't you. And I think yes. that that's super, super powerful. And I also you you ran through these questions. I just want to make sure that if you're driving, if you're washing dishes right now, if you're running right now, you don't miss these. And that I just really want you to pause and and answer these questions because it's so important. So I wrote them down because I was taking notes. Who do you really want to be? Who do you really want to be? And there's so many layers to that, but but really uh, it's so so powerful of a question. How so, do you want so, to show up? Yeah, go ahead, Shah, if you want yeah, to. Yeah, so, so when you think about who do I want to be? So, you know, do you want to be a thought leader? Do you want to be known for knowing the most about one topic, right? So do you want to be known for knowing the most about online courses or the most about memberships? or the most about CrossFit, because that's a thought leader. Or do you want to be an influencer? And I don't necessarily mean in the same way that we kind of think about Instagram, TikTok influencers. I mean, do you, so Lewis Howes is an influencer because of his podcast, because he's got, he's able to share his views. So if you're passionate about about multiple topics, who you really want to be is you, you want to influence people for good. You want to make an impact. So when you think about who you want to be, so who I want to be, is I want to be the go-to mentor for entrepreneurs and business owners who are ready to do the work. That might not be what other people want, right? Other people have different goals. You don't have to have my goal. You can have your own goal. It doesn't have to be the same goal. Yeah, love that. <laughs> so powerful. And also like, obviously it's, it's like swimming. It's like rowing a boat upstream versus going downstream. Like just think about how powerful it is if you have that answer. And if you're in the right area, it's like, it's, it's a lot simpler and stuff is stacked in your favor. If you're simply just going downstream instead of swimming upstream. So love that. So who do you really want to be? How do you want to show up? Who do I want to serve? How do you want to serve them? So I really just would encourage anyone to go deep into those. And and because like, I, I would assume, Shah, that this work, as, as you say, doing the work, it's not like this just comes in a bolt of lightning or one journaling session. This is an evol evolving process that you're figuring things out. It is. And I also want to say it will change over time, right? Because our, our lives are like books. They're like chapters. So the answer to all those questions today might be different in the future. Mm, and that's okay because it's a journey. Yeah. So let's say somebody is doing this work. And I, I think it's important to think about this as like a cycle, like you said, because it can change. So it's like you have the yeah. most highest level of clarity and you're pursuing something. 
you know, the next thing that happens is you have to sort through all the opportunities that come your way and all the different things that you could be doing. And one of the things that I love that you share in the book, or maybe you can share something else that's related to this. I love the yes, no checklist because it's so easy for people to have a difficulty with saying no to things that, you know, sound good, but are, may, maybe aren't necessarily in alignment. So maybe if you could share some of your insights on how to say no without feeling bad. <laughs> I'm going to share that. I'm going to share a little exercise, another little exercise with you. Sure. So um, I think that so often we say yes to things that we don't really want to do. That, that means we have to say no to things that we really do want to do. And part of that is being polite. And particularly the British, we're really bad at this. So I really encourage people to, to learn how to say no. Um, and you don't have to be rude about it, but you have to say, you know, Brandon, as much as I'd love to help you, I can't right now because I just don't have the capacity. If I can do that in the future, I will definitely reach out to you. Nobody's left feeling bad. I'm not saying, no, I don't want to do that. No, what a waste of my time. I'm saying, Brandon, you know, I'd really love to support you, but I just don't have the capacity right now. If I have the capacity in the future, I'll make sure I reach out to you. So there are lots of different ways that you can say no. And it's a muscle. The more you use it, the easier it becomes. And you can definitely take people's feelings into consideration. And like somebody asks you, I don't know, they, they, they ask you to, to help with childcare or they ask you to lend them money or they ask you, can I prick your brains over a coffee? I mean, I get that all the time. And I just have to say, I, I'm really sorry. I, I just don't have the capacity for people to pick my brains anymore. But if you'd like to book a session with me, this is how you can do it. Love right. that. And you set, set up the parameters on how they can work with you. Love that. Yeah, 100%. And that's because I also feel like there is so much that we all give away for free. If you're really serious about picking my brains, just listen to my podcast. <laughs> right? Like people 100%. are lazy. Like not all people, but the people who are lazy are the ones to say stuff like that, right? Like, let me tell you the difference. If somebody reaches out to me and they say, hey, Sha, I listened to your podcast about X, Y, and Z. And on that podcast, you said, da, 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 and it made me start thinking about this. And I just have one question for you. This is what I'm thinking about doing. And based on what you said on that podcast, this is what I'm thinking. Do you think that's a good idea? I will answer that question because mm. you have done your work. I will always help someone who's prepared to help themselves. But unfortunately, what I tend to find in life is that the people who want a free ride and an easy ride, they don't do the work. They don't do the work. I'm not here for people who don't do the work. I'm here for the people who show up and do the work. Mm -hmm. so, so I just want to share this little exercise with you, right? I don't even know if you're going to be able to see it. It's just so happened that I happened to be flicking through this notebook before we started. And then you said this, and I thought, oh, let me get this page up. So one of the things that happens, I think, a lot, especially with um, people who entrepreneurs, small business owners, People have lots of ideas. We have so many ideas. We're like, oh my God, like which one shall I do? We get like confused. So I'm going to share something with you. It is not rocket science, people. So please, I don't want to like, you know, hype you all up and you're going to think that you're going to see like, you know, the just, just, uh, this isn't rocket science, all right? But it works. It's a very simple exercise. So all you do is you draw three columns. And the first column, I put a little smiley face and the second column, I put a heart and the third column, I put a pound or a dollar sign. And these represent three things. The first one, the smiley face. How easy is it? The second one, the heart. How much do I love it? Like how much do I really want to do it? And the third one, the money sign is how much could I potentially make from this? And then I list down all of the ideas. And what you want to do is you want to mark each idea out of 10, one being... It's not very easy. I don't really love it. And it's not going to make me any money. And 10 being, oh my God, it's super easy. I'm in love with it. And it's going to make me a gajillion. So then what you end up with, I don't know because I don't know if my, there you go, right? So you have your ideas around there. So, you know, it's an eight for being easy. I, it's okay. I don't really love it. Don't not love it. Uh, it's going to make me like, you know, a huge amount of money though, right? And so what you want to do is you want to keep working through your ideas. And what you should be looking for is something that's a minimum of a seven and above across all of them. So you want something that, because for example, something that's really easy to do. So I see, I, you could like create it very quickly. It's not going to create, take you a year to launch it. Let's say that's a nine on, on the easy scale. And it's only a six, like, 
you're not absolutely in love with it, but you don't hate the idea of it, but it's a 10 on how much money it can make you. You want to do that for cash flow. So you want to do that type of an idea for cash flow. Now, something that is easy and you love and makes you money, obviously you're going to say yes all day long. But one of the things I think when we start to look about building out our portfolio of wealth is something that maybe it's not too easy. Maybe it's like a, maybe it's like a, a five it's kind of halfway but you really love it right like this is a 10 you really want to do this and it can make you a ton of money so that kind of idea is the kind of idea that it might take you a year to create it to launch it but it's going to make you really happy and it has the potential for making you a lot of money then what i would say is you typically want to have something that's generating you the immediate cash flow to keep you going but then you want to have something that you're building to make the impact for the long run. So as somebody who has so many different ideas, this is just, like I said, it's not rocket science, but I just, how easy is it? How much do I love it? How much money is it going to make me? And I take all the emotions out of it and I just be really honest. Because if I really love it, but it's going to be too difficult and it's not going to make me enough money, no matter how much I love it, I shouldn't be doing that. Mm. So simple and so, so powerful. So there you go. Those three columns, smiley, heart, and money. Smiley, how easy is it? Heart, how much do you love it? And money, how much money could you make from it? And rating those on a scale of one to 10, very simple, very clear. You could go super nerd. The way that my brain would go is like, let's turn this into a spreadsheet. Or you could just pull out a piece of paper and whip it out on a piece of paper, you know? So, so much, the, the best ideas are the most simple, right? So like, oh, like how can well, you- Because how... you implement them, Brandon. The best ideas are the best ideas because they're simple and you implement them and you actually do them. You don't have to think about them. You don't have to take a course in learning how to, you know, implement them. You just go- yeah, that idea. I remember hearing Sean on a podcast with Brandon, like that just works. Like it takes me two minutes, but it works. Yeah. Super powerful. Well, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, we have scratched the surface on some of the exercises and the story that Shaw brings to the table. So anyone can explore any of those uh, ideas in her books, go to Shaw.com, which is awesome. You have that that website, S-H-A-A.com. Anybody can check that out as the hub, I'm kind of assuming. But Shaw, as we, as we kind of wrap up today, I would love, I like to ask lots of my guests this one question, and then we can find out other places we can find out about you and your work. But um, what, right. is happy, what does happiness mean to you today, Shaw? What is your best understanding of what it means for you? Ah, happiness today means having quality time with my friends and family, taking 17 weeks vacation every single year, and being able to pursue the work that I love. Beautiful. 17. Look at how specific that is. I love yeah. that. There's obviously lots of thought that's gone behind that. So we already mentioned uh, Shaw.com. Anybody can go get do less, get more, how to work smart and live life your way on Amazon, I'm assuming, or go find out yep, other places. Where absolutely. else can people, your podcast, tell, tell us a little bit about where they can find out about your work. Yeah, I think the best place to come and follow me is on Instagram. I have a very unusual name, Shaw, S-H-A-A, Wasmund, W-A-S-M-U-N-D. Just come follow me on Instagram, send me a friend request on Facebook, um, follow me on TikTok. Like I said, if you just go to shah.com, you'll see all my connections right there. It's the easiest place to go. And yeah, I am very lucky. I have a four-letter domain name. Beautiful. Beautiful. Man, well, this has been such an incredible episode. I'm just going to have a really quick conversation with you listening right now. And I just want to say... You could be anywhere else right now. You could be listening to any other podcast. You could be doing a bajillion other things, but you clicked on this episode with Shaw and man, you picked an incredible episode to listen to. And whether you're a new friend, this is your first time you ever listened to a show or a returning listener, I just want to ask a favor of you. And that is if you've heard something that has changed the way that you thought today or a story that has moved you, maybe it was hearing Shaw and like the, the background that she had to grow up with and the adversity she had to go through or how she stole letterhead and, and ended up interviewing Chris Eubank or worked with Dyson or, and maybe it was the smiley heart and a dollar sign exercise. All these things have the capacity to absolutely change someone's life. And you have that responsibility right now. You can absolutely do that. So it would absolutely make my day. It would make Shaw's day. If you took the time to share this with someone and, um, Man, this has just been an incredible episode, Shaw. Any final things you want to say before we wrap up for today? Uh, I, I'm just really grateful for you bringing me on here. And for everybody who's listening, what I would love more than anything for you to take from this is for you to be empowered to change your own life, your own career, and your own future. Beautiful. Shaw, thank you so much. This has been a blast, and I appreciate you, and we'll talk to you soon.